Welcome, everybody, to the Between Two Wheels podcast. This is Tyler Yonke uh, on today's show. STDs, sexually transmitted doping. Yeah, it's it's a thing, and we're going to, we're going to do a breakdown and kind of some interest. Uh, racing in Georgia. It's going to have. Uh, we're going to start some uh, domestic racing. Do we need to save cycling from the Everestine thing? It's it's bothering me. Some things that make you go, hmm, some winners and losers, and unwritten rules of cycling. Do you attack in the feed zone? Do you attack on when someone gets a mechanical? We'll talk about that as well. All coming up. Between Two Wheels Podcast. This is Tyler Yonke, episode 179. Welcome, welcome. Hope everyone's doing fine. It's uh, I'm recording this on a Tuesday. Is this a Tuesday? It's a Wednesday. I don't know. I, it's it's difficult knowing what's going on. I'm waiting for my work to kind of get back in the the flow of everything. Uh, but I'm in the office because I might as well uh, waste my time here. It's a little better uh, recording. So I'm here, and I hope you're there. I, I've been out riding. I'm doing. I mean, really enjoying it. Hanging with the some of these uh, younger spry riders. Uh, just gotta gotta get the weight down a little bit. Have a little trouble with that, uh, and maybe it's because I'm riding enough where my fitness is going and I'm, I'm doing good, so then I can overindulge to kind of com- compensate for all the calories I'm burning. I don't know. I, you know, weight, it's a it's a written thing in, in cycling, right? Well, we're just talking about some unwritten rules. I don't know why I thought about this is an interesting topic, but um, I've been re-watching a bunch of these old tours, and you start to see some, some one that, that really, it, there's some bothersome things that happen in there. So I'm going to go over a few of these um, unwritten rules and then break down some of these situations. And um, so we've seen this happen in the tour, right? The most recent crash in the 2019 Vuelta, stage 19, Roglic goes down, a bunch of guys go down, movie star attacks off the front. Uh, eventually they neutralize that, the officials neutralize that. And movie star at the time is like, hey, look, we had, and actually you could see it in the documentary, they'd planned that uh, beforehand. So it was all planned and, and just people wreck. What's weird on that one was the officials neutralized it or, you know, I did some weirdness there. Um, movie star was upset about it. Roglic was glad, I don't know, conciliatory about it in a sense. Uh, Lopez was not. So, you know, there's attacking on that. Like I said, the, the documentary uh, totally shows that post, you know, a, there was anger. Lopez was really mad at Valverde and he goes, Hey, you know, you're disrespecting the Jersey. And I'm like, um, his, possible doping doesn't res- disrespect the, the rainbow jersey but attacking on a on a wreck that's that's where you have it anyway we've seen these incidents play out in the past let's just go over a few of them 1989 tour de france greg lemon he misses a move uh, pdm they attack in a feed zone uh-oh stage 13 that was um, now he was on this team adr and they were really really bad matter of fact i think only maybe he and eddie plankert i'm trying to remember I know Eddie was on the team, but I'm trying to remember if Eddie was like the only other person that finished that race. It was pretty much decimated, and Greg LeMond did it all on his own. They attack in a feed zone. He's got to end up chasing back to Fignon and, and Delgado, I think, or Charlie Mote that were off the front. And um, I don't know if he had had a flat in some situation. Anyway, there's some some bad stuff in there, and you know those things happen. We start to see a little bit of a change uh, from some of those uh, attacking in the feed. Well, and you know what? Another one, uh, 1987. Um, while Fignon had attacked here in 89, 87 was another interesting year of attacking. Matter of fact, uh, Jean-Francois Bernard wins. They have a Mont Ventoux time trial. Uh, pretty brutal. He wins at the top. It's pretty exciting. Uh, Andy Hampston does poorly, but um, Stephen Roach is near the front. Pedro Delgado is near the front. And the next day, there's some climbing involved. 
Jean-Francois Bernard, yellow jersey, pride of France. He's going to be the next Bernardino. He gets a mechanical over the a second to last climb of the day and um, has to, and they attack. They attack when he has this, it thins the field down. Um, he's got to expend a lot of energy getting back to them in between the two climbs. He ends up coming right as he's coming back into the feed zone. Uh, uh, Pedro Delgado and Steven Roach attack him dropping him out with Lucho Herrera. Uh, so there's like another break of 20. So this guy not only got attacked uh, when he had a mechanical, then they attack him in the feed zone as well. And they ended up uh, gaining uh, four minutes on him in the day and he was uh, he was done for there. And you know, he, he never really had another chance at winning the tour. He ends up coming back as a kind of a domestique, kind of a pretty significant domestique for uh, McGill Indurain later on. Uh, but you started to see this, um, some, some I don't know, fair play or waiting for riders. You, know, you saw 2001, Tour de France. Jan Ulrich goes, decides when the road goes left, he's going to go straight. He goes into the ditch. Uh, Lance Armstrong waits for him. I think that was stage 13 on uh, the 2001 Tour. Fign uh, Laurent Jalabert is now a climber. He's up the road. Lance waits. They go up to the climb. Lance then goes ahead and tacks and, and dumps uh, um, Ulrich. But, you know, allowed him to get back into the group plus at that point uh they might have had one or two passes still to go so it was a little early to get rid of someone else who can who can help you in there um then we've got, got 2003 and i kind of want to come back to the 2003 one here um they're going up luzardi den uh they go over the tourmalet first ulrich attacks there to thin things out this is the one where lance was having a little bit more trouble in the race uh, i think this was his was this his fifth victory um, victory. We'll use those in quotes. Um, but um, that one was, you know, trouble in the time trial. He was really dehydrated. They kept pecking away at him. Anyway, they come into this stage up to lose already Den, and he attacks at the bottom of the climb. Yvonne Mile jumps with him. He ends up hooking his handlebars into a kid's musette bag, a little gift thing on the side of the road, pulls him down. He gets back up and he starts to, to try to claw his way back up to the group ahead. And he about loses the one bit of manhood he had left on the top tube um, as his gear slipped. You know, and then they, Jan Ulrich, Tyler Hamilton, these about mile, they're, they're all up there. He gets right up to him and he doesn't even and they're slowing down and there was some controversy of whether they had attacked him while he was you know down on the ground um and then and then boom lance uh tacks right straight through him as i don't even know if they had time to if they were just still slowing down and he comes right through and attacks takes you know a minute or 40 some seconds there and ends up winning that tour um i will talk about that one a little bit because I, I just want to kind of eh, you know let tyler hamilton oh, in that same race he had gone uh, Balaki, remember they, they were coming into Powell and they're coming down the, the hill and take a right-hand corner. Balaki does, goes high side. Lance goes off into the field, does a little cross thing. They didn't wait for Balaki. So, you know, things are different about when you do it and when you don't. Ivan um, Mile, 2004, he, they come into the cobbles section and the early part of the race, he crashes early. And uh, right before they get to the cobbles, the postal service is, is nailing up there. They don't wait for him. He had just beaten Lance Armstrong in the Daphne Libre that year, Criterium du Daphne, whatever you call it now. And um, so, you know, he was definitely a, a threat overall and they dispel of him and don't really uh, do anything else. Then a little bit more modern time, um, we've got Chris Froome, 2016, remember? He uh, cracks his bike, uh, has, carries the, the fake, uh, the, the Mavic bike up Mont Ventoux. Um, then 2017, you have two incidences with him. Stage 15, he is, and, and maybe we'll take a look at that video. 
because um, there's an in, Eru attacks him as he's getting a mechanical rear derailleur, and then later on he has a stage 15 or so, 19. I don't uh, let's see if I actually wrote it down here. Um, stage 15. Um, Froome is got a damaged wheel, uh, AG2R. Then it takes off, and he's got to you know use his whole team to help him out for uh, trying to catch back up. What's what's really interesting to me on on that on the the Rue one is <laughs> the fact that he uh, attacks, and and maybe we can show it here. He ends up attacking when uh, right under Froome's arm. So uh, Froome puts his arm up, and you know calling for his his uh, team car, and when, when he's doing that, he's he's basically uh, saying, hey, I've got a bike problem, and then what happens is Rue ends up just attacking through this. So while that comes up here, maybe I'll just talk a little bit. So I have a little bit of trouble with all of this, and I wish, uh, and I mentioned this before, but I wish we just kind of do away with it, these unwritten rules, and partly because it's always, you've got to interpolate and interpret the circumstance and whether this is the right thing to do. The, the Lance one up uh, Luzard Den is always somewhat bothersome to me. And I think the reason for that is that he he allows everyone, he, he has a problem. He rides too close to the um, the side and he, he ends up running into um, someone with a bag. And when he does that, you know, it's not the, it's not the guy, rider's fault uh, behind. Um, it's, it's obviously his fault. And um, so we're going to show this here. Okay, so you've got, Froome, he, maybe we can, we can hear that there a little bit. We're going to show here a replay. Okay, so roof slows down. Let's get to the point where Aru is actually, okay, so here we go. Team's on the front. Froome is talking into his mouthpiece. He's going, hey, I've got some issues. He's wobbling back and forth across the road. There's some issues. Rue's on his wheel. He's on uh, the right, left side of the road, right as we're looking at it from the front, looking back. Um, he puts his arm up as he, <laughs> Rue actually ducks under his arm to get past him and then goes up the road and attacks. Okay. Um, that's uh, that's maybe a little bit of a, the controversial on that side, but you know what? The, the reality is, who cares? This is my whole point on this thing is, who cares? He has a bike problem. He has, you, you know, always wait. Now, nice that Lance laid it. And, and it's always your prerogative, I think, if you want to wait. Lance Armstrong waiting for Jan Ulrich going into the ditch. Totally makes sense. Um, you don't want to, there's only two other guys with him. Uh, you don't want to, you know, the uh, Jalabert's up the road and your other guys are behind. You're going to go solo. He's probably going to expend more energy. Wait for Jan have a team and you're going to be better off to wait for that thing. Um, but when Lance comes up there and he's on Lutzardi Den and everyone waits, I mean, they, they literally shut it down. They shut down their riding from going in full, full, you know, attack, not necessarily attack mode, but just riding hard tempo mode. And they're weaving across the road. They're looking around. He gets up to them and then he boom hits them again. And they've got to go, you know, they've lost momentum and now they've got to go back up and then hit it again. It's just, it, it almost seemed unfair. What, what, he was doing not to mention the fact that he was dope to the gills but i'm just talking about the strategy stuff um this one here um you got uh chris Froome. he's got a bike problem he ends up you know that's whose fault is that and and what if what if it's like blocky like why didn't they wait for blocky when he fell oh because well we know blocky ends up you know destroying his hip 
and he was really never the rider he was. He didn't finish the race. But um, what if he got up? What if he's just like, oh, you know, not even a flat tire, and he gets up? Well, because he went down and he wrecked. Yes, he wrecked, and it was his fault. Much like uh, the bike, uh, you know, you don't you get flats, you don't get flats, and you know things happen at different times. So I just thought this was kind of an interesting thing. Attacking in the feed zone, you know, it always seems like it's it's a bad form. They don't like to do that. I think Phil Guymans talked about when he was on, he he had attacked in a feed zone when he was uh, on like Kenda and everyone was yelling at him. And then when he was on Garmin, he was yelling at other people for doing it. So, and he, he understood the the hypocrisy there is kind of the, the hierarchy that you have in a sense. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, the fair play necessarily on those things because it's, it's what it is. It's kind of the whole thing. I mean, you can wait if you want, you can not wait if you want. Um, but in the end, it's uh, the, the all the bike riding, the stand up right, not getting flats. Those are just things that happened, and um, you know it's what it is. No one waited for me at Chico when I got a, when I got a flat, including the, um, the the mechanic car. Well, the mechanic car was waiting for me a few miles back, I guess, because it took like 15 minutes for them to finally finally get there, which was a bit much. Okay, STDs in cycling. Yes, STDs in cycling. Well, what is that? Uh, did you know you could get spent suspended for an STD? Female boxer is cleared of performance-enhancing doping charges, and I'm like, come on with this. Um, what are we What are we talking about? STDs. We're talking about. Um, sus- let's take here. Let's take a look at this this article because I think it's uh, it's actually pretty funny. Okay. American boxer, Olympic boxer, and, and this name, Guinea Fox, Guinea Fuchs, cleared of doping violation caused by sex. Exoneration of guilt uh, for her failed doping test caps a stressful month. U.S. Olympic team boxer Virginia Fuchs, we'll say Fuchs, just so the, the, the folks out there don't get any uh, trouble with their kids, will face no punishment for failing a doping test after the U.S. Anti-Doping Association determined the violation had been caused by two substances transmitted by her boyfriend through sex. Sexually transmitted doping. That's my STD. Sexually transmitted doping. USADA announced its ruling Thursday, clearing the 32-year-old Fuchs who intends to qualify for the Tokyo Olympics next year as a flyweight. Fuchs has served as a recent captain, blah, blah, blah. Coronavirus, blah, blah. Fuchs learned in March, because I just want to get to the interesting part here. Fuchs learned in March that she had tested positive for two banned substances during an out-of-competition test in February. While investigating the test, USADA learned Fuchs' partner had been taking products that included two banned substances, and the levels of Fuchs' violation were consistent with recent exposure through sexual transmission. I don't know how they determine um, that. that. That seems a little, I don't know, you're, you're kind of, leading to a conclusion that I don't know how you can clarify that that's the case. Uh, did they do testing to see if that that's like actually what happened? USADA CEO Ta- Travis Tiger said the organization confirmed Fuchs' violation only because it was required to do so. While the World Anti-Doping Code required that this no-fault finding be considered a violation and be publicly announced, we strongly believe this case and others like it, including meat contamination and prescription medication contamination cases, should be considered no violation, Tiger said. We will continue to advocate for changes to the World Doping Code so that there is no intent to cheat and no performance benefit. An athlete should not face any violation or unnecessary public attention. Fuchs didn't want to comment, okay, but uh, 
beyond a statement issued by USA Boxing. I had no idea that I could become contaminated, <laughs> contaminated by way of intimate contact with another person. I want to thank USA Boxing for believing in me and supporting me through these past few months. Um, I'd be interested in what does her boyfriend do? Is he is he a boxer as well? Was he was he working out? Was he taking performance enhancing? And I didn't really didn't really say what it uh, what it was here that she had, which is also interesting. If you're testing positive, this is why I'm talking about sexually transmitted doping. If you're testing positive, okay, does that mean that there's something in your system? If you're if you're positive, it means something's in your system for you to then transmit it through blood tests or, or urine samples, right? So something's in your system. Um, does that mean you're getting a benefit from that? So whether it's intentional or not totally get it but uh, is this a way around it is this how we're going to do it you know it, it it does mention in there it's strict liability you know tommy danielson and some of these other guys um what's the gentleman he was with rally i'm trying to remember his name but um they're you know they're, they're indicating that it's unintentional that they you know the, the contador uh, contaminated me or, or um uh, rogers had done that as well um I thought the idea at the time was even with strict liability on those, which means it doesn't matter what your intent is. It's just if you are uh, caught with it, you are responsible for what goes in your body. So she, she's still responsible for what goes in her body. Um, contaminated boyfriend is what it sounds like. I just think it's a little weird. So if she's still testing positive, um, is she getting a benefit from that? So maybe that's the way you do it. You have sex with someone who's loaded up to the gills with whatever and then it uh, transmits itself into you, and there you go. Or perhaps maybe some of these drugs are, you know, they used to say that they would ban certain types of drugs because they are things that ma are masking agents for other drugs. So therefore they would, you know, kind of ban the whole environment so that you're not uh, taking something that could lead to something else, even though what you may, taking, may, may be taking is not actually um, anything to do with uh, performance enhancing. I don't know. Um, I thought it was very interesting, and I think that it just leaves itself open to too much. Because how did they confirm this? Did they go? They didn't say in here, but they'd have to test him and say that he's, you know, on whatever that they're they're getting. And how did she even know to to get this? This one? and and I think we'll talk about this here in a little bit because I just mentioned the Lance Armstrong thing. So I finally saw the Thirty for Thirty uh, ESPN documentary, and absolutely loved it. Uh, started watching you know saturday night and next thing you know it's sunday morning late or early and i've been you know doing this bloodshot eye thing for like three hours but it was fascinating and i couldn't i couldn't stop it and and what really you, you end up seeing in there is one he was so powerful that he had and like he mentioned you know what kind of control did you have the, the uci and he's like well as far as money goes zero wasn't putting out any money to the uci Okay, but then he does it basically elaborate, you know, he gets on a phone call and he makes these calls, you know, his Swiss um, uh, positive in the tour to Swiss, tour Swiss, uh, what, before the 2000, before the 1999 tour, um, and I mean, it might've been a few years before that, but that came out and he's like, I just gave him a call. They were like McQuaid, I think, who was in charge of it. And they made, or Andre Legrand, I don't remember who the, the, the UCI president was at the time, but they made it go away or they, they caused it to do um, be one that you can use as a cream so it was okay. And he had all that kind of power. You know, Tyler Hamilton later on comes in there and says uh, he was 
he ran up. I think he, he, he won or he was very close to, he beat Lance, at least on the Mont Blanc two time trial in the Dauphiné uh, prior to the tour. And he's like, uh, he had heard rumors that Lance was pissed off about that and had called the UCI. Next thing you know, that night, the UCI is all over um, Tyler Hamilton about testing. And then, so, you know, that's the end of his career uh, that season. Uh, so we don't know. The, the point I'm getting at is here. I don't know if there's some sort of involvement with this girl. And I, mean, I don't think she has any power, but it is a little odd that they just take for, for when, when all these other things, you have to fight and fight and fight. You know, they did reduce. They reduced. They didn't let them off. They reduced Tommy Danielson's um, last positive because they said, oh, I think we're able to show that it's contaminated uh, products, even though the, those products themselves may say, it's all clear and ready to go and good. But point is, I don't know. Seems weird. Seems a little shaky. Last thing. My first goal in boxing was always to be an Olympian and get a gold medal, Fuchs said. That's why I waited another four years after Rio. All of these last four years, I worked hard for it. It's not going to go to waste. I still want to get that gold medal. Well, she got the gold medal with the boyfriend. And uh, good luck to her and him. And I hope he's uh, not contaminating anyone else in and around boxing and or any other sport. Okay. Uh, racing in Georgia. So I heard from Mark Tucker, a Velo Kings racer, uh, guy here in Northern California, uh, current district slash state road race champion in, uh, what is it? Uh, maybe, I'm not sure what age group he is, but he's a master's. Um, he and... Uh, Begley are heading down to Georgia to do the tour of North Georgia. And I think that's pretty cool. So we're going to actually talk to him before he goes. And then um, when he, maybe when he's down there, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with him a few times and kind of see this. So maybe we'll take a look at um, what the actual racing looks like, what they have going on there. So it looks like to me, there's, they say it's two parts. So it's June two like four days in June, four days in July. And it's like an eight day, eight stage Omnium. So I don't know if he's going to go back and forth for both of them, but it looks pretty cool. Um, you've got, you know, time distances. So maybe crits. I don't know if they're doing some time trials. We'll talk to him. There's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then probably the next one, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, eh, good for him. Six mile time trial on the Saturday and then road race at 30, 3.30. So 80 miles. Here we go. So these are miles, not minutes. So you have a Friday, you have a minutes, and then you have a miles race, um, 48, 50. They're not doing too big and 60 miles. So we'll talk to him. We'll see what, what kind of have the, the thing with Sean Bagley and him, what they have going on and what, um, and, and how this is going. This might be the first racing we have going on in, uh, the North in, in domestic in the U S I don't know if, uh, if there's anything else really taking, taking off. Um, we're not really doing that. I just filled out a survey for, um, the NCNCA, whether we're, you know, would you pay more to do a race out in the middle of nowhere? You know, cause it probably might have some trouble. That's, that's one of the things you're going to have is they may be able to start racing again, but are these areas and these cities going to permit it to, and when I mean permit it, I mean like actually, uh, issue a permit for you to use their, their roads, in town because they might not want you there um they might want you know some of those businesses might actually want business so they can they can make some money but um the town itself might be a little concerned about it so they may not actually be allowing and, and issuing permits and if that's the case then um are you willing to go out and do a race that's a little bit further are you willing to pay a little bit more maybe if they have to you know to, to permit 
um, a race in town. Everestine, this is the new big deal with cycling now. And Lachlan Morton, he ends up, he's best known for, hey, if you've got an amateur race out there of no importance, he will go out and do it and probably win and set some sort of record. So in due form and to follow with that uh, whole theory, he's uh, Lachlan Morton. Uh, set a new Everestine record in the time of 7 hours, 32 minutes, 54 seconds on Saturday. Uh, EF Pro Cycling Rider rode 42 repeats of a 1.9-kilometer, 11% grade wrist canyon climb outside Fort Collins. Pretty sure I've done that. Um, Martin's, and, and this is what's weird about this, his, his 8,848-meter ascent ride totaled just under 170 kilometers the Australian's effort breaks the previous record set by U.S. national mountain bike champion Keegan Swenson, named to the long team of the Olympics. Uh, Swenson had set a time of 7 hours, 40 minutes, 5 seconds in May. Uh, what's interesting, this one is what 1.9-kilometer climb. It's not very long, so he did 40-some repeats of it, and it just seems interminable. I, I, I don't know. I might actually prefer to do, like, a longer climb, but, you know, this seemed to work for him. Um Swenson took the loss of his title with good humor, saying on Instagram feed, Lachlan Morton just raised the Everstein bar, and he did it at altitude, and it should be done, as it should be done. You know, um, Everstein, people are getting into it. They're getting excited about it. They seem to be uh, thinking it's kind of the thing to do in the corona atmosphere that we have. Uh, personally, not a big fan. Um, doesn't seem to be all that exciting to me, but good for him. It's like seven hours out there. You know, Katie Hall had set one, uh, for the women, and then it got destroyed by someone else. So it is interesting to see the pros, um, just like Strava. They'll come in, they'll take over, they'll do everything they need to do and uh, to make it a little bit more exciting. So Tour de France. Tour de France is going to come up. Uh, we'll have the Giro before that. And what we have on tap here is a chance for someone. Uh, there's, uh, we'll either have another one in the five-win category, Chris Froome, or he's going to be the only one set at four wins. You know, Lance Armstrong blew through that. And I'm going to give him credit. You know, watching those tours, I mean, he Lance did things uh, strategically that were pretty exceptional uh, all the time. And you know, there's something to be said for that. It's also something to be said about how little he crashed, uh, how little he flatted, and um, being able to, to do the win. You got to get – it's amazing to get through the, the stuff like that. Um, I, I – tend to keep him on the list because everyone was doped to the gills back then. I don't know. You might have had different winners. And it's hard to even tell what that is. There was just an article that came out by Vela News that did a uh, comparison because it's hard to tell routes from routes. Hey, look at the time that they did up Mount, Mount Ventoux or look at the time that they did up Alpe d'Huez, you know, before. And now look how much faster they're doing. But what you don't know is weather. You don't know about, you know, the fatigue of the, the times leading up to that. So what they were actually able to do was one time trial locked of something or other um, that they've done several times in the Tour de France and uh, being able to, it's kind of like 19th stage three or four times, the exact same route. And so they were able to give some comparisons of times over the years. And the interesting fact being kind of like uh, the Lance Armstrong, I think it came into from like when Greg LeMond had done it and then Broykink had done it and it was like, you know, Broykink had started to do in the uh, aerodynamic era and he was pretty close to uh, Greg LeMond's time and then from 86 to, you know, 
90 something in there. And then you go 95 when uh, Indurain comes in and just blows it out by five minutes. <sighs> and then you start to see the differences where even, even the last guy, I mean, everyone was adjusted by five minutes, such as like the, even the last place rider was five minutes ahead of what the other one. So those are, those are maybe a little bit more than marginal gains. And you're starting to say, Oh, I, I see what's, what's going on. You know, and Greg LeMond had complained about, after the 90 tour, which he wins, he wins 86, 89, uh, 90, and then 91, he's like, uh, things just start to get out of control. Well, now he was he was having some some health issues. I think 92 was maybe his last year, but he's like, you know, he can barely hang on anymore. And you start to see that. And um, so what do we have here? I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about some of the, the, the multiple-time winners. You had three, uh, three-time winners, Greg LeMond. Um, you had Luzon Bobet. Tease Philippe. Tease Philippe was back in the early 20s, so we'll just kind of skip him. Uh, Luzon Bobet was in the 50s. What's interesting, you see some of these like Luzon Bobet, uh, Jacques Guigan Cotil, um, which was a five-time winner. Uh, they end up, I think both of them, their first time doing the tour, they end up winning it. And um, Bobet was kind of him, and then he he skipped a few years, and then he'd come back, and he'd, he won it again, won three of them. And then all of a sudden, the next year, he didn't want to do it, and Ancatil, Ancatil got put on the, the French team, and he goes and, and wins it with his first time. So there's some five-time winners, uh, Bernard Hinault, Eddie Merckx, Jacques Ancatil, and Miguel Indurain. Um, you know, we, we know, and I just want to say kind of their last fifth win is always a tough one. Um, although Indurain, you know, he, he, was, uh, he wins in 1995, about four minutes over Alex Zul, and Zul did horrible in the the two time trials basically took all his time from them. As a matter of fact, Zul took two minutes out of him um, on one of the first big mountain stages. But anyway, time's there. He wins by four minutes, and all his wins were like four or five minutes, and he just destroyed everyone in the time trial. Uh, it was 1996 for him where suddenly Bjarni Reese, who had, I think was third in 95, now comes in and just, you know, this is the guy <laughs> that's so doped up. I think he's, you know, Mr. whatever, 60-something, Mr. 70-something on his hematocrit and he is over the top on on those uh, on his numbers and he ends up just just trying you know how to come i think was the one of the stages there it was a really shortened stage due to the weather and he just ignites it from the bottom and destroys everybody for um being doped like nothing else anyway so uh Indrain had a tough time he couldn't get even close on i think it was 11th overall on in 1996 uh Anka Won his first race in 57, um, at, uh, the first time he tried. And then um, he took, he didn't do 58, 59, or he did one of those, I think. And then he came back in 61 and won from 61 to 64. Um, and after his fifth win in 64, he didn't race in 65. It's kind of odd. And then in 66, he quit. Um, he was too sick and just having trouble, so wasn't able to stick with it. Uh, uh, Eddie Merckx, um, similar to him, where he comes in and wins, and then he has some times off, and then he his last tour, he ends up winning it, and then doesn't come back. Um, then you have Eno, which we're everyone knows about that the 1985 tour, promises Greg LeMond, and uh, but for Greg LeMond kind of backing off and not uh, really trying to win it himself. Um, it would have been difficult for Bernardino. And then 86, he uh, couldn't win, obviously, because of uh, Lance Armstrong. So we got Chris Froome. So 2017 is his last win. And we're, we're wondering, you know, he, 2018, he was, that was the, he, did, he didn't win the 2018 tour, obviously. That was, uh, 
Garrett Thomas and helped him out. He had had a weird year with his, you know, won the Giro and then wasn't really quite at the same thing. And then, you know, 2019, he ends up uh, faking a crash in <laughs> in the Daphne. So he wasn't able to participate in the tour with Bernal winning. And with Bernal and some of these other riders, I just don't know that Froome has it in him to get past four wins. But, um, you know, he's he's been in and around. And uh, the 2017 one wasn't an easy one for him uh, either. So... It will be uh, it'll be interesting to see what what happens, especially with the shortened season. Maybe some riders won't come in quite the same. Maybe he's able to capitalize. But um, do we get a four-time winner? You know, we have a seven-time slash zero winner. Then we have these five, this big group of five, and then no one's been in the four. Every four has been able to get to five um, or seven. And um, then you have the three threes. So last thing we'll talk about here is how about some things that make you go, hmm, no. I don't have anything. I just talked about Lance Armstrong earlier and his 30 for 30. I think it is a great thing to do. You know, people change and you can see in this uh, 30 for 30 that near the end of it, he is really taking, you know, I, he's, they say, and, and there's been some misquoting out there, uh, would you change anything? And when they say, would you change anything? He's like, no. And everyone's like, oh my God, he would dope again. Um, I think that's what he meant. But then he goes on to actually explain it of, I wouldn't be the person I am now if it wasn't for going through all this. So he seems to be uh, at ease with where his life is and having, you know, kind of, he made made a point there of sticking too long with uh, Sheryl Crow. She's a famous person. He's a famous person. He's like, I didn't really want to be dating her anymore, but you couldn't really back out of it. And then he talked about his wife how he just left that situation. He's like, you know, I still got some of that flight in me that you just wanted to take off. So I think he's, he's changing himself and trying to be a, a better person. And then with that, they say, he says, you know, like, oh, life's kind of bad. And he's like, well, it could be worse. I could be the POS, wake up a piece of S that uh, Floyd Landis is every day. He wakes up and he's, I'm just going to, he's just a piece of shit. That's what he says. And you're like, wow. And then he, there's just some other times in there where he's in front of places and he's talking about what just hate on uh, Floyd Landis. And what did Floyd do? Floyd was the one that blew the whistle. So he says that at one point, I would not be who I am today if I didn't have to go through all of this and kind of thankful for that. But he's not thankful for the person that made him go through all of that. I don't know. That's what we have. So um, thanks, everyone, for joining us for another grand edition of the Between Two Wheels podcast, 179 episodes in. We're going to talk to Mark Tucker this next week, get his input on the tour of Georgia and, or tour in North Georgia and uh, see how that's going. So everyone, you can find the show. Why don't you rate and review us? Subscribe to us on YouTube. Check us out on our YouTube, on our Facebook page, everywhere else. Seriously, go out there. Just right now, just click rate it. Rate a five. Say, eh, whatever. I like it. Between Two Wheels Podcast, episode 179. Tyler Yonke. Take care, everyone.